This week, Dean files Chapter 11, Unity and Windstream hit impasse in mediation, Acosta releases prepackaged plan, but certain lenders form in opposition. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later this episode, I will run through a few credits which experienced a high degree of volatility after reporting third quarter results. It's Sunday, November 17th. Dean Foods, a Dallas-based food and beverage company, the largest dairy company in the United States, filed for Chapter 11 protection in the Southern District of Texas last week. The debtor stated that the case was filed, quote, in the face of significant industry headwinds and an impending liquidity crisis, which were sparked by a multi-year trend of shrinking margins and increasing competition. According to the first-day declaration of CFO and Senior VP Gary Ralphs, after considering a variety of strategies to, quote, re-energize the debtor's standalone business, the debtors ultimately determined that a Chapter 11 filing was the only option they could pursue for a variety of reasons. Specifically, Ralphs pointed to potential contingent liabilities that Dean Foods faces related to the underfunded status of certain multi-employer pension plans in which it participates. Quote, in particular, and by far the most significant, Ralph said, is the estimated potential contingent withdrawal liability of more than $700 million related to the central state, southeast, and southwest area's pension. Ralph stated that such potential liabilities significantly impaired Dean Foods' ability to pursue any strategic transactions with third parties outside of a bankruptcy proceeding. The company has received a commitment of approximately $850 million in dip financing, comprising a $425 million loan facility to replace and roll up the pre-petition revolver, and an amendment and restatement of the company's $425 million securitization facility from certain of its existing lenders led by Cooperative Rabobank UA. Dean said it is in, quote, advanced discussions with their longtime commercial partner and largest single raw milk vendor, Dairy Farmers of America, to potentially serve as a stocking horse bidder for substantially all assets. The company says it will at the same time use the runway provided by the proposed dip facility to explore all alternative options for standalone restructuring. At Wednesday's first day hearing, the debtors faced opposition from an ad hoc group of bondholders with respect to the debtors' proposed dip financing and critical vendor motion. Bob Britton of Paul Weiss, appearing on behalf of that group, informed the court that the bondholders have, quote, a material source of funding to provide an alternative dip financing proposal that would permit the debtors to reorganize rather than sell the company. He also disclosed that the group had enough funding to buy the company outright. Britton informed the court that the group had been in conversations with over 50% of bondholders and said that the ad hoc group and the debtors have engaged in negotiations over the weekend before the petition date. Additionally, he said that the ad hoc group wants to be sure the debtors run a, quote, real sale process that maximizes value to the estates and to avoid, quote, a sale without a true market check. Talks broke down this week between debtor Windstream Holdings and master lease landlord Unity Group. As the former issued a press release announcing that the, quote, parties have reached an impasse with respect to the issues and claims subject to the Unity lease mediation. And the mediator has therefore suspended the mediation indefinitely. Debt for both entities traded lower on the news, though Unity's bonds recovered somewhat towards the end of the week. Along with the announcement, 
The companies released cleansing materials detailing proposals from both sides to end the dispute, along with a summary of certain expansion opportunities in Windstream's markets and a schedule of planned tenant capital improvements from 2020 to 2030. In its own Cleansing 8K, Unity Group stated that the mediation, quote, has not been terminated, but suspended indefinitely due to an inability to reach a resolution, quote, with respect to the issues and claims subject to the mediation. According to the cleansing documents, both proposals retain the master lease agreement structure and do not appear to contemplate a nominal reduction in monthly rent payments. Although Windstream's proposal does state that the arrangement must satisfy, quote, true lease analysis with respect to fair market value terms for renewal periods. Both proposals also contemplate Unity funding up to $1.75 billion of TCIs, as well as a purchase by Unity of certain dark fiber assets from Windstream. The primary source of contention instead appears to be the upfront consideration to be paid by Unity, the rate of return to be paid by Windstream on Unity-funded TCIs, as well as certain non-monetary terms. Meanwhile, hearings on both the Unsecured Creditors Committee's standing motion and Unsecured Notes Indentured Trustees motion to strike the Unity master leaf from the debtor's schedules of assets and liabilities were adjourned. The former was rescheduled to December 18th, the latter to November 25th. Both were previously scheduled for November 20th. Ahead of Acosta's expected Chapter 11 filing, Reorg obtained cleansing materials indicating declines in 2019 revenue and EBITDA from customer loss and volume declines. The RSA, which the company disclosed on November 8th and which is supported by more than 70% of lenders and 80% of note holders, would eliminate all of the company's approximately $3 billion of long-term debt, with investors committing to backstop $250 million in new equity capital. In discussing the need to restructure, Acosta said in the materials that it was unable to keep pace with the, quote, unprecedented level of client losses. The company added that some of the client losses had resulted from the company's transformation initiatives and that, quote, a few clients had concerns over our highly levered balance sheet. Acosta expects fiscal 2019 adjusted EBITDA to be $211 million, and fiscal 2020 adjusted EBITDA to be $141 million. The company disclosed in the materials that, quote, due to the full-year impact of recent client losses and assumed continuation of recent client volume trends, fiscal year 2020 adjusted EBITDA is expected to be materially lower than fiscal year 2019. Additionally, Costs related to the necessary compensation investments and incremental volume reductions are forecasted to outweigh EBITDA improvements from cost actions and new business. Acosta posted the plan and disclosure statement on Prime Clerk on Friday. Based on the plan, PJT Partners, as financial advisor to Acosta, has estimated that the reorganized debtor's total enterprise value is in a range of between $700 and $800 million as of October 31st. PJT has assumed that the reorganized debtors will have, as of the effective date, a pro forma cash balance of approximately $156 million and indebtedness of $7 million. PJT estimated, therefore, that the potential range of equity value is between $848 and $948 million. Reorg also learned that a group of term lenders had hired FTI and Arnold and Porter as advisors. The group, which holds more than 50% in number of lenders, signed a cooperation agreement to reject the company's proposed prepackaged plan of reorganization. And, as always, on the island of Puerto Rico, 
Kramer Levin on Wednesday night filed an eighth supplemental Rule 2019 statement on behalf of the ad hoc group of PREPA bondholders, disclosing approximately $4.48 billion of total holdings, that's as of November 8th, up from four as of October 15th. That's consisting of approximately $2.36 billion of uninsured PREPA bonds and approximately $25 million of insured PREPA bonds as of November 8th. Nuveen Asset Management has joined the group with approximately $778 million in total holdings, including 698 of uninsured PREPA bonds and 20 of insured PREPA bonds. Centerbridge, a member of the group when it signed on to the PREPA RSA back in May, is no longer listed as a member. All of the continuing group members have decreased their PREPA bond holdings relative to the previous 2019 statement. Notably, Blue Mountain pared back its uninsured PREPA bonds position by approximately 63% to $113.6 million, down from 309.3. Silverpoint's total PREPA bond holdings are also down by approximately 58%. Invesco cut its total PREPA bond holdings by just over 30% and now holds no insured PREPA bonds, according to the filing. Also on Wednesday, the PROMISA Oversight Board filed a response to the motion seeking leave to participate as amici curiae, Plus, in addition to the Rule 9019 motion seeking approval of the settlements embodied in the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's restructuring support agreement, submitted by Representative Raul Grijalva, Democrat from Arizona, in his official capacity as chairman of the U.S. House Natural Resources Committee, and Representative Nidia Velasquez and Darren Soto, Democrats from New York and New Jersey respectively, both in their official capacities as members of the U.S. House Natural Resources Committee. The amicus brief contends that the approval of the RSA will, quote, automatically cause a slowdown in the economy, which will exacerbate out-migration trends and further lower demand for electricity. The Oversight Board argues that the amicus motion should be denied because, quote, at its core, it presents public policy issues that the court has already ruled are outside the scope of inquiry, particularly regarding, quote, macroeconomic and energy policy issues. Earlier on Wednesday, Representative Bob Bishop Republican from Utah, filed a letter opposing the amicus petition, arguing therein that PROMISA should be allowed to, quote, function as originally intended. Congress delegated authority to the Oversight Board, and it should be allowed to do its job. On Wednesday as well, Judge Laura Taylor Swain entered an order requiring parties to submit supplemental briefing regarding two issues raised in the November 12th Joint Status Report, setting forth their positions regarding the objection by the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors to the proof of claim filed by PREPA bond trustee U.S. Bank. In the joint status report filed in accordance with the court's October 31st order, the parties disagree regarding the potential procedural and substantive aspects of the claim objection. In particular, the parties are at loggerheads on whether the claim objection must be heard before the overarching PREPA 9019 settlement motion. In her order, Judge Swain required the parties, the UCC, the responding bondholder parties, the government parties, the fuel line lenders, UTIR, and SREAEE, to address the following issues. First, whether the UCC has standing to object to U.S. Bank's proof of claim without court leave from the court, pardon me, and second, whether the court must hear and adjudicate the claim objection notwithstanding the pending 9019 motion seeking, among other things, approval of the settlements embodied in the PREPA RSA. And, according to testimony at the PROMISA Oversight Board's public hearing on education, also on Wednesday, the Puerto Rico Education Department is falling behind on the savings goals in the Commonwealth Fiscal Plan, which is limiting the availability of funds for special education and classroom services that go directly to students. 
The agency also posted just this week a request for proposals for a third-party fiduciary as the federal government required in June to order to unfreeze $680 million in federal education funds assigned to Puerto Rico for fiscal 2020, officials told Oversight Board members. Other top stories last week were plan comparison, TCC note holder plans contemplated $15.8 billion pre-petition debt reinstatement could implicate pre-petition documents lean-up requirement for unsecured notes, but results in lower new money need and post-reorg leverage. Chesapeake's ability to use Brazos subsidiary in J.Crew-like transaction is limited by Brazos docks as Chesapeake pursues variety of transactions to reduce leverage. And filing alert. Arsenal Energy files second prepack this year, Chambers Mercuria Lime Rock to take over equity, gathering agreements renegotiated or rejected. As always, here's Jim Holloway with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Connor, and hello, listeners. This week is, in a certain sense, the last real work week of the year. Thanksgiving next, then December is upon us. So this week is fraught with all sorts of drama, maybe not as much as last week. But anyways, you can all get rested next week when you're waiting outside the Best Buy at 4 a.m. on Black Friday to get that 75-inch HD TV. So anyways, Monday this week, Monday, November 18th, PG&E, yes, that's Pacific Gas and Electric, a provider of power in California. When the wind's right, wildfire claimed estimation status conference. Tuesday, November 19th, the second day hearing in Highland Capital and a dismissal motion hearing in Jack Cooper. And nor are earnings forgotten as Transdime, a manufacturer of aircraft components in Cleveland, Ohio, reports earnings before the open and conducts a call after the close. Wednesday, November 20th, EP Energy, a final dip and backstop commitment hearing, and in Sears, a um, hearing on motion to dismiss or convert. And we have earnings from Avaya and L Brands. November, excuse me, Thursday, November 21st, Alta Mesa, there is a final cash collateral and motion to dismiss hearing. And for Insys, a disclosure statement and motion to convert hearing. Earnings from Seadrill and Seadrill Partners, the always intriguing rig contractor industry, along with West Corp and Community Choice. L Brands has an earnings call. And Friday, November 22nd, continued cash collateral motion in Destination Maternity, a summary judgment hearing, and an omnibus hearing in White Star. And the Federal Communications Commission, whatever would we do without federal commissions, holds its open commission meeting. I guess that's where you can go and complain about something. Like, why doesn't all this great streaming media I keep hearing about carry Bassmasters episodes from the 1978 season? Anyways, it is now time for me to pass the mic back to Raksha, who is going to tell you all about some volatile credits. Raksha, take it away. This quarter, as we've usually done in the past, I wanted to discuss a few companies that have experienced unusually large volatility since reporting third quarter results. This week, I'll be looking at Excella, Valaris, and Chesapeake Energy. Since reporting results on November 12th, Excella's 10% senior secured notes due 2023 are off about 10 points from indications around 46 prior to the company reporting. The global third-party provider of data aggregation, information management, and workflow automation services reported a 2.6% decrease in revenue year-over-year, to $372.9 million for the third quarter. Adjusted EBITDA fell 15.1% year-over-year to $58.5 million. 
The company also provided an updated 2019 guidance, lowering adjusted EBITDA by about $40 million to a range of $255 to $265 million. CEO Ronald Cogburn said, quote, We are not satisfied with our performance and are taking a comprehensive look at our business and market opportunities in order to focus on where Excella is best positioned for stable, profitable growth, while at the same time improving our financial flexibility. Prior to the call, Excella announced that its board of directors adopted a debt reduction and a liquidity improvement initiative. To fund the debt reduction, the company is pursuing a sale of certain non-core assets. Excella said it has retained financial advisors to assist in the sale of select assets. The company expects to use net proceeds from the initiative for the repayment of debt with a target reduction of $150 to $200 million. It says that it expects the announcement of specific transactions that are part of the initiative to commence in the fourth quarter of 2019 or the first quarter of 2020 and has set a two-year timetable for completion of this initiative. Now, let's move on to Valeris. Turning to our offshore drillers, formerly known as Ensco Rowan, it's seen about a 5-10 to 10 point reduction in certain of its bonds since reporting results. The offshore driller reported results in line with guidance and has said that recent contract awards and extensions, quote, demonstrate the recent increase in customer activity for future offshore projects, particularly for deepwater work beginning in the mid-2020 and beyond. However, revenues declined 6% from the second quarter to $551.3 million due to completion of 12 rig contracts, offset by six new contracts commencing along with lower day rates. Valeris reported $1.6 billion of liquidity as of September 30th, totaled $1.6 billion after commitments on the company's revolver decreased by $500 million at September 30th. Borrowings on the revolving credit facility were approximately $140.6 million on the same day. A number of offshore drillers on recent earnings calls have highlighted the steadily improving fundamentals for the offshore rig contractors as the rate of production growth in U.S. shale basins decreases. That being said, comments are a reiteration and extension of forecasts for recovery and utilization and day rates issued over the past year. Valeris in particular said it expects to generate higher year-over-year adjusted EBITDA in 2020 for the first time since the offshore downturn. The company cites expectations for a, quote, noticeable improvement in the back half of 2020. Specific to Valeris, CEO Thomas Burke announced that the company will deliver, quote, significant merger synergies beyond the $165 million guidance previously provided. The company said it plans to provide specifics on the revised target and timing before the end of 2019. So sticking with energy, following its earnings reports, Chesapeake's 8% senior unsecured notes due 2025 fell to 55 from the 70 context, according to Trace, while the 7.5 senior unsecured notes due 2026 traded to the 45 context from 66. Sources suggested that the trading represents capitulation by a small number of long-only funds. The company reported a 5.7% sequential decline in adjusted EBITDA for the third quarter as revenue fell 12.5% sequentially. 
While CEO Doug Lawler said in the release that the company was targeting free cash flow in 2020, its 10Q warns of a possible covenant breach related to its leverage ratio next year should depressed commodity prices persist. On a conference call discussing third quarter results, CFO Nick Deloso said that while the company could seek a waiver from its bank group at any time, it prefers to focus on, quote, strategic levers that will result in debt reduction. These include, Deloso said, asset sales, hedging prices as they rise, capital markets transactions, and of course, working very closely with our bank group, which we do on a regular basis. So, Reorg looked at one possibility that certain sources had suggested could be available to the company. That is to drop assets to its oil-rich Brazos Valley subsidiary, which was acquired in its purchase of Wild Horse Resource Development Group. This could be a key engine in its drive to transform itself to a crude from a gas-weighted portfolio or to another unrestricted subsidiary. While Brazos Valley is less leveraged than Chesapeake and is more exposed to oil as opposed to natural gas, both Brazos and the rest of Chesapeake have burned free cash flow in the year-to-date period. According to Chesapeake's consolidating financial statements included in its latest 10Q, non-guarantor subsidiaries generated $287 million of cash from operations in the year-to-date period and spent $436 million on drilling and completion costs and $15 million on other property and equipment. Garantor subsidiaries, on the other hand, generated $898 million of cash from operations in the nine months ended September 30th and spent another $1.216 billion on capital expenditures. If you're interested in that report, please call your salesperson. So those are just the few names that we wanted to highlight this week. Thanks as always for listening and look forward to the next quarter. Connor, back to you. Thanks, listener, for tuning in to another weekly review. As always, find all of our podcasts on our website, reorg.com. Click the media tab or visit iTunes and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelding.